0: So, women have always made art in the West, pottery, baskets, and rugs crafted by Indian women form the beginnings of a long lineage of Western women's artistic expressions. With the advent of Euro-Americans wi- in the West, new artistic traditions emerged, and scores of women artists worked here. Some were self-taught, others trained in the East and Europe, and they taught in and founded Western art schools, and art departments at colleges and universities. They also exhibited at county fairs, in local gift shops, and restaurants, and the region's most prestigious museums. Yet with the exception of Georgia O'Keeffe, I'm not turning, I'm trusting. Is that a Georgia O'Keeffe? Yeah. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Great. Most of the West women artists remain unknown, and their work unrecognized. And this obscurity, I think, lies in two causes. One is simply their gender, but also in the fact that they painted the West. Um, With few exceptions, once painters and their subject matter moved west of the 98th Meridian, they became regional artists, and they had to fight for any kind of serious recognition. So women's artists' struggles were compounded by the expectations of women's proper role as wife, mother, and housekeeper. Well into the 20th century, an independent professional woman was a rare commodity, and a woman who combined a profession with marriage was rarer still. Eve Drulo, who lived and painted in Boulder, Colorado from the mid-1920s until her death in 1989, spent her entire life, as she said, struggling against the demands of domesticity. Housewife, she often exclaimed, what an odious word! First, foremost, always, my waking thought from an embryo on was my need to be an artist. Fortunately, Elizabeth Davy Lockery enjoyed being a housewife and a mother. A supportive spouse and financial security allowed her to combine domestic duties with a successful career as an artist. Elizabeth Lockery dreamed of being a good mother and a first-rate Western artist and motherhood and painting became entwined during her life. She once remarked, when I was younger, I was interested in painting babies, my own babies and the neighbor's babies, and our beautiful Montana landscape all around us. An encounter with Blackfeet Indians in 1931 <coughs> ignited pa- uh, a, passionate, or a passion for painting Native Americans. And it led to over four decades of private and public work, not only to paint Native peoples, but to improve the um, uh, working or the living conditions of indigenous people. So as she grew older, maternalism increasingly infused her artwork and her relationships with Native Americans. She churned out paintings of or portraits of Native babies and children for eager clients, She raised money, collected clothing and medicine, and helped find work for the families of the Indians whom she painted. As a club woman, (coughs) Lockrey sought to educate her peers in art history and to make a place for art in Butte's public life. As a public speaker, she brought Native American history and culture to adults and children. And when she was 70 years old, she said, I never wanted anything but to paint and have 10 children. My three lovely children came much nearer the perfection I dreamed of than does my painting, but the dream has never dimmed. Elizabeth Lockery was prolific, producing by her own reckoning 2,500 large paintings, 3,000 small ones, two illustrated books, three post office murals, and a mural series at the Montana Tuberculosis Sanitarium. Versatility marked her landscapes and portraits, which she worked in oil, watercolor, charcoal, pastels, and bronze bas-relief. Lockrey was best known for her dramatic, richly-hued Native American portraits, but she did not begin painting Indian subjects until she was in her 40s. Unlike many women artists and many mothers, Lockrey won considerable recognition for her work during her lifetime. Early in her career, she exhibited at Hennessy's Department Store uh, here in Butte, where her mother happened to um, uh, start the art department, so there was a little nepotism there. Um, She also exhibited in gift stores and restaurants throughout the state. Eventually, she was represented by a New York gallery in her later years, um, and she could not produce enough work to keep up with clients' demands. And she very much saw her work um, as a business. So like if a client said, well my couch is avocado green, could you reframe this print to match it? She would do that. In 1939, a jury selected one of her paintings to represent Montana at the New York World's Fair. She was the first Montana woman artist to have a one-man show in New York in 1952, and the first contemporary woman invited to exhibit at the Whitney Gallery of Western Art in Cody, Wyoming. When she was 70, the Montana Press Association declared her Montana Mother of the Year. So born in in, uh, Deer Lodge in 1890, Elizabeth Davy grew up in a family that appreciated art and enjoyed the outdoor attractions of Montana. In England, her mother Mary's family had been enthusiasts of the arts and crafts movement. Her father was an inventor, an amateur historian, photographer, and outdoorsman. He taught Elizabeth and her three brothers to ride, hunt, and fish, Indeed, Elizabeth was quite the tomboy. She caused a stir in Deer Lodge when she appeared riding in a divided skirt or in her bloomer-based baseball uniform. She was the only girl on the town's baseball team. In 1903, just a few weeks before Elizabeth's 13th birthday, her father was killed, leaving her mother with four children to raise. Mary moved to Butte, where she taught home economics in the public school system, and as I said, established the art department in Hennessy's department store. Elizabeth graduated from Butte High, and she headed east to the Pratt Institute in New York. She took the normal school course, which meant she prepared to be an art teacher. But she saved her lunch money, and she attended Saturday classes at the Art Students League, um, where she could observe Robert Henry and William Merritt Chase, both of whom trained many women who would eventually paint the West. In later years, Elizabeth pursued further art training whenever she could, so she really saw this as um, her calling and her profession. In the 20s, she studied commercial art through a a, um, correspondence course, In the 30s, she spent two summers with Weinhold Rice at his art school in Glacier National Park. And in the 40s, she took summer courses in fresco and mural painting. When Elizabeth graduated from Pratt in 1911, she planned to go to Egypt to teach art at a missionary school, uh, a school for girls. On a trip home to say goodbye to her family, she met and fell in love with a young banker, Arthur Lockrey, Canceling her trip to Egypt, she and Locke recorded marrying in 1913 and settling in uh, Deer Lodge. So Elizabeth pursued her career in art while raising three young children, Arthur, Betty, and Helen. In 1915, she began drawing a series of cartoons for (coughs) the Deer Lodge Silver State newspaper. They were humorous portrayals of local events. Sometimes they had a political content. She also taught taught art in her home, Lockrey in fact took private private students for many years until the demand for her painting consumed her time and ended the need for that income from teaching. She once described her first two decades of combining marriage, motherhood, and art as 20 years of diapers, bed, dishes. So I always managed to have a room or corner for my paints and through this busy time held art classes off and on between babies. In the same year that Arthur was born, Lockrey received her first significant professional commission. The Galen Sanitarium, established in 1912 to treat tuberculosis sufferers, off, uh, opened a children's building in 1924. The Sunshine Pavilion was named after the popular tuberculosis cure in a series of sunshine camps where children received nutrition, or nutritious food, rest, and measured exposure to sunshine. The state hired Lockrey to paint decorative murals for the new new unit, and her theme was Mother Goose, and she used her children and many Deer Lodge friends and neighbors as models to illustrate various tales and I can't—I haven't been able to find an illustration of that so I don't have a slide. So each morning Lockery would pay, place baby Arthur in a basket and then accompanied by Betty and Helen who carried her art supplies, the family would go off to paint. <clears throat> in the late 1920s, Arthur's work took the family to Helena and then Spokane and in 1931 he accepted the presidency of the miners savings bank, and trust company in Butte. And I love this ad because we should all be so lucky to get 4% on our savings accounts now, right? So the Lockerys moved to 1102 West Granite Street, which would remain their home until Arthur's death in Elizabeth's move to California in 1975. In Butte, Elizabeth created the Well-Ordered Life, that allowed her to fulfill her duties and pleasures as painter, wife, and mother. In addition, she joined numerous women's clubs and had a wide circle of women friends, including Dr. Carolyn McGill, who often hosted Elizabeth at her 320 ranch in the Gallatin Valley. Uh, Lockrey painted many landscapes down there. Helen Clark, another of Elizabeth's Butte friends, was a prolific journalist who wrote frequently on Western art and published several essays about Lockrey's career. And I believe Helen Clark's papers are at the Butte archive. In the 1930s, Lockrey once again became a muralist. She won three commissions in federally sponsored contests to decorate new post office buildings. News from the States was involved in um, News from the States was installed in Dillon, Montana, Covered Wagon on the Oregon Trail in Burley, Idaho, and the fur traders in St. Anthony, Idaho. Lockrey was a grateful employee and a supporter of federal art programs of the 1930s. She praised the federal government as the first extensive buyer of art that the American artist has ever known. And apart from the fact that New Deal art programs helped artists feed themselves and their families, she said that the approval and recognition placed on the work of hitherto unknown artists in every region and district of the country has so strengthened and encouraged both the creating artist and the buying public that art has taken a huge step forward in national and local appreciation. <coughs> Excuse me. Lockery saw the New Deal art programs weaning Americans away <coughs> from an uncritical preference for European art. She said that this program helped Americans um, increase appreciation for new works that honestly depict Americans' current or early life that show the beauties, problems, development of our individual people. Lockery wanted Montanans to create an art to match the state's other treasures. In a radio address in 1938, she noted that Montana had made its mark worldwide in terms of its raw materials—cattle, sheep, metals, and grains—and she hoped that Montanans would also be recognized as, or Montana would also be recognized as, the cradle of a true and individual art expression. Lockrey's artistic influences and interests were many. She was an admirer of uh, an admirer of Charles Russell and Frederick Remington, as well as Renaissance painters and the painters of the Hudson River School. Like Russell and Remington, she was meticulous in her portrayal of Native American dress and ornament. As as art historian Patricia Burnham has said, these were painters who used, quote, costume details as signifiers of historical truth. Lockrey was, however, far more interested in individuals than than were Russell or Remington, and she devoted many more canvases to (coughs) portraiture rather than to history painting. While other of her Montana contemporaries, such as Val Knight and Isabel Johnson embraced modern art, Lockrey never did. She declared, representational painting was the only way I can see beauty. Landscapes and portraits were her favorite subjects. While best known for her Indian portraits, Lockrey did paint many scenes of rural Montana and urban Butte. The Ford Motor Company commissioned a series of uh, watercolors that depicted Butte's street life. These two, I don't have slides of, so you have to be satisfied with Anaconda. Lori would be pleased. Okay. Um, so these, she was commissioned to do these watercolors for a to illustrate an essay on Butte that was published in the 1952 Ford Times. so And there's a great picture, actually, of the interior of Gamer's Cafe in that uh, series. So her portraiture included studies of Butte physician Dr. Carolyn McGill, her friend, the well-known writer James Willard Schultz, and governors John Erickson and Sam Ford. She seemed seemed to like virtually everyone that she painted. She never had a harsh word for any of her subjects. But she felt that her Indian paintings were her most revealing, or the most revealing. Elizabeth had a long-standing fascination with Native Americans dating from her childhood when she had played with Indians in the Deer Lodge Valley. In 1929, she painted a portrait of Flying Cloud, a flathead Indian, and wrote on the back of the piece, first Indian oil I ever painted from a two by three photo in black and white. Two years later, in the summer of 1931, while accompanying Arthur to a banking convention held in Glacier National Park, Elizabeth left the Many Glacier Hotel to sketch Blackfeet Indians who were camped on the grounds. And there she met a woman named Gypsy Bullchild, The two struck up a friendship and Lockrey painted her portrait and jotted Mm -hmm. on the back, first Indian painted from life. This encounter would change Lockrey's life in many ways. Um, She turned almost exclusively to painting Native American subjects and her meetings with Native um, Americans and her experiences on Western reservations triggered a determination and a commitment to improving Native life by whatever means she could. By the 1930s, Lockrey was able to spend the time she needed to pursue her Indian subjects. And I use that phrase very deliberately. It's almost like she hunted them down. She was 41 years old. Her girls were teenagers and her son was eight. Arthur had a good-paying job and the Lockreys were able to afford domestic help. Years later, she advised young artists, in order to give one's uninterrupted attention to one's work, it is almost imperative to travel alone and, if possible, by car. One must be free to concentrate, to stop whenever and for as long as the scene prompts, to start out or to stop when you, the artist, wish. And this is, in fact, what she did in the 1930s. Occasionally taking the children with, with her, but more often leaving them in Butte with Arthur and a maid, Lockrey spent each summer driving from reservation to reservation, courting natives to pose for her. And one story I'll share with you re- reveals her persistence. Lockrey wanted to paint Maria Weaselhead's portrait, but Maria had no interest in the project. When Lockrey approached her in 1942, Weaselhead spit on her and refused to pose. Lockrey spent five hours begging, pleading, offering money and gifts. Weaselhead finally agreed to allow Lockrey to paint her if Maria sat in the shade (coughs) while Elizabeth sat on a nearby manure pile in the sun. (laughs) Lockrey offered her double pay if she would relent But Weaselhead was adamant, so Elizabeth perched on the manure pile and Maria cursed her in all whites during the portrait session. But Elizabeth said, but I did get my picture. So Lockrey was one of a long line of Native American portraitists who believed that they were capturing the last vestiges of a vanishing race. In the 1830s, George Catlin feared that Native Americans might very well become extinct. A century later, Lockery's own teacher, Reinhold Rice, painted the Blackfeet drawing on the same impulse. Rice, a German artist, had grown up devouring the Western novels of Karl May and the frontier tales of James Fenimore Cooper. For, and he first painted uh, members of the Blackfeet nation in 1919. Beginning in the late 1920s, the Great Northern Railway purchased Reinhold uh, Rice's work to use in their advertisements um, for travel to Glacier. For over 30 years, Rice's paintings appeared on Great Northern calendars, uh, dining car and hotel menus, ink blotters, playing cards, postcards, and brochures. While he needed the income that the Great Northern provided, He worked from an ethnographic impulse. Lockrey painted in the same tradition. The fact that her initial encounter with Indian models took place in Glacier National Park meant that the network of Indian families with whom she became familiar were those recruited to work as tourist attractions in the park, meeting visitors at the train station, welcoming guests to hotels, drumming, dancing, and conducting naming ceremonies in hotel lobbies. Both the Great Northern and the park wanted full bloods who had elaborate outfits and could represent, as one advertising manager uh, wrote, real Blackfeet types. By the time Lockery met Gypsy Bullchild, she and members of her family had worked in the park for many summers. Her husband, George Bullchild, was a good friend and model for rice. The Bullchilds introduced Elizabeth to other members of the tribe And this set a pattern for how she worked over the next several decades. In 1948, Lockrey lamented that at the Flathead Reservation, she had not found, quote, a single old type Indian to model. Lockrey's time with Native Americans led her, as it did many other artists and intellectuals, to adopt the cause of the Indian. She learned about Native life from tribal members and in more formal settings. She read history and biography and sat in on anthropology courses. She immersed herself in native cultures, particularly that of the Blackfeet. She mastered sign language and she could converse in several Indian dialects. She garnered as much history as possible about each of the people she painted and often wrote biographical notes on the back of her canvases. In 1932, the Blackfeet adopted her and gave her the name Netchitaki woman alone in her way. Euro-Americans fascinated by the culture of a vanishing people flocked to reservations in the early 20th century to record stories, (coughs) collect artifacts, paint portraits. They took much and they often gave little or nothing in return. With rare exceptions, even the most sincere came for short visits or field work then returned to distant studios or universities to write, paint, and analyze. Lockrey was unusual. She was a Montanan who never went very far, whose Butte home was open to her native friends and people they sent to her, and she worked for them at the grassroots level. Yet at times, she she demonstrated a remarkable arrogance and insensitivity toward Native cultures. She once described her attempt to paint the Sundance on the Fort Hall Reservation, home of the Bannock Indians. She noted, they're not quite as friendly with the whites as some of the other northern tribes. They still resent us very much. And as they tried to usher me off the reservation, I threatened to go to the Chamber of Commerce. And they said, just try it. (laughs) So I went to the Chamber of Commerce And I told them what had happened, and I asked for protection for one of the state policemen to go with me. The person with whom she spoke asked her not to pursue her demands to paint the Sundance, and in fact offered to compensate her trip expenses if she would simply let it be. And she did leave. So what to make of this behavior on the part of one who once wrote that being so poor, even the the finest Indians have to submit to the greatest indignities, to being stared at, to having their most sacred religious ceremonies profaned by the noise and clatter of groups of curious whites who barge in uninvited to be amused by their prayers, their beautiful face painting and significant ritual ceremonies. Lockrey's own commentary on her Fort Hall experience is at first confounding. She said, we think we have the Indian well-educated and under control, but there are spots where we have to walk very delicately, and with good reason, no doubt, and I think that their reasons are justifiable. Often they've been provoked or imposed upon until they have to stand up for their rights. They've been very much abused." This seemingly contradictory attitude was not unique to Loughry, but shared by many people who considered themselves, quote, friends of the Indian. Many men and women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries wanted both to help natives and to record or preserve traditional Indian cultures. Theirs was a paradoxical task, often believing that assimilation was the best way for Indians to, quote, get along in American society, at the same time, they mourned the passing of Native languages, dances, clothing, and ceremonies. Artists, ethnographers, writers, photographers, naturalists, club women, showmen, and opportunists, the Friends of the Indian were a motley lot. Some diligently used their influence to benefit NATO's materially and politically. Others harvested Indian culture for their own professional or entrepreneurial benefit. Some encouraged natives to market their native arts and ceremonial life to tourists as both a way to preserve that culture and bring money to reservations and pueblos. In all cases, the men and women engaged in this work walked uneasy easy paths between condescension and respect, hard faced realism and romantic nostalgia, assistance and exploitation. And often, while condemning the provocations or impositions of others, because they admired Natives and had good intentions, they expected themselves to be immune from resentment and to be given privileged status. Now, I sounded pretty harsh on Lockrey there, Um, but she shared these contradictions. She, too, believed that assimilation was the best path Indians could take, But she also believed that white society could learn much from natives. For over 40 years from the time she started painting Indians until her death, Lockrey worked both sides of this equation. Certainly her paintings were one way to educate non-Indians about native people, yet they nearly always abstracted Indians from history. Few show any background, landscape, or context. Her subjects are pictured in outfits common to the pre-reservation era, but by the time she began painting Indians, they had been confined to reservations for decades and their material culture, decimated by poverty and repression. Lockrey also spoke about natives throughout Montana and the Northwest. In her public lectures, she sought to educate her audience about Native Americans and raise money and clothing for them. And this uh, piece has that headline, one reporter summarized a presentation, Butte has discovered the Blackfeet through the eyes of a banker's wife. But to some degree, Lockery and the Indians she painted developed a reciprocal relationship. Initially, she gave trinkets, gas money, small sums to individuals for their portraits. Um, but over the years, she repaid their gifts as she prospered with hundreds of dollars in cash, uh, clothing, and hides that she convinced the Forest Service um, and the um, uh, Fish and Game Commission who confiscated poached, ho- poached animals, and she could convince them to ship the hides to uh, the Blackfeet. She was particularly close to the bear medicine and bull child families on the Blackfeet Reservation. Over the decades, um, she corresponded with them for over 30 years. And at least two generations wrote to her about conditions on the reservation. The lack of work and services, the sickness and all too frequent deaths, especially during brutal winters. This is a a piece, I don't know how clear you you can see it, of Mrs. Bear Medicine, and this is one of um, Gypsy child after the death of one of her daughters. When Lockery was at home in the winters, she could not devote herself exclusively to art. Still, she often spent eight or nine hours a day at her easel, converting field sketches to paintings. Friends related that she would rise at 5 a.m. to scrub the kitchen floor and put the house in order so that she would have time to paint. So she succeeded as a painter and homemaker in a period in in which most women would have chosen one or the other, and few people expected a woman to do both jobs competently. Her accomplishment attracted comment. In 1937, she was introduced to the Butte Rotary Club as having, quote, gained distinction as an artist without neglecting her duties as housekeeper, wife, and mother. In eerily familiar language, she was praised in 1963 as one of the most dedicated, successful, and resourceful artists in the Rocky Mountain region and an eminently successful homemaker. So Elizabeth Lockery's art and her family anchored a complicated life. She was artist, wife, mother, friend, teacher, volunteer, businesswoman, and advocate. And her many roles pulled her in opposite directions. But she clung to um, painting topics that, thank you, most women artists in the Rocky Mountain West, according to art historians, did not paint history painting, but Lockrey stuck to that. So this is, um, you know, this is a painting very reminiscent, I think, of a Russell. <coughs> this is my last paragraph. Um, so Lockrey is part of the tradition to the tradition of Montana painters who immortalized a past of richly decorative characters a past accurate in its details but partial in its truths. Still, despite her shared commitment to the romance of the Western past, unlike Russell and Remington, Lockrey painted numerous Indian women and children. Their presence complicates the Western art tradition and forces viewers to see a richer historic and artistic legacy of Montana and the West. It is indeed a twined legacy of painting and motherhood that lockery carefully orchestrated. Thank you.